Um, so, for Outland, we're, um, our sermon series is Turn Your Eyes. Um, and today, uh, last week we started it looking at Adore, Adoration, uh, Psalm 103. And today we're thinking about Confess. Um, now, I wonder, maybe some of you are squirming right now, thinking, oh, we're going to hear a sermon on our sin and all of that. Um, but actually, I think it's one of the most liberating things to, to, to realise when we are able to confess the sin that has, has and still is permeating our lives uh, every single day. Um, it's tremendously freeing when we get to acknowledge our state before him and then in response to that, what God does uh, through that moment where we uh, confess to him. And I'm not talking about confession where we go to a box in the corner to tell the priest all your, your deepest, darkest secrets. I'm not knocking that. If that's, that's not what you're used to, feel free. That's not what I'm talking about this morning my confession what I'm talking about is us being able to approach God's throne, as we'll look at in a short while, with the utmost confidence, to be able to share with him every single thing that we know to be true in of our lives where we've fallen short of God's glory. And when I'm talking about sin, I'm not talking about that sin. Often people talk about sin is the thing that makes us bad, um, uh, makes us bad people, whatever that means, um, and if you're not a sinful person, you're a good person. Or if you're a Christian, you're a good person. That's what people often talk to me about when I chat to them. Say, I'm a Christian. Oh, well, you must be a good person. I'm a really bad person. No, the Bible is clear. Sin doesn't make you a bad person. Sin makes you dead. And Jesus is also clear that he doesn't make you good. He makes you alive. That is the essence of what the reality of what sin is and what Jesus come to do when he dealt with our sin on the cross. Sin doesn't make us bad, it makes us dead. And when we confess our sin, we get to acknowledge that Jesus has died for us on that cross, taking all that sin on his shoulders, and we get to be able to confess it and say, God, I know that only you can bring me alive because you've come back to life through the other side of the grave. So whether you're a follower of Jesus this morning or not, I want to encourage you... Um, that, as I said just a moment ago, confessing your sin. Realise that this morning. Maybe there's something in your life at the moment that you haven't confessed and you're aware of it. Maybe you confess daily and maybe there's something, again, as I'm speaking this morning, you realise there's this area of sin in my life I need to confess. Whether it's something you daily, you've not done it in a long time and you've never done, there's something liberating in this this morning as you think about the joy and the freedom that can be found in confession. So our context, we're going to be in 1 John mostly this morning. Um, and the context, uh, broadly speaking, in the New Testament, there's not too many passages that talk about confession in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean it's not important. Not for one moment. There are instances when it is taught. And the Apostle John, who wrote John's Gospel, um, wrote for us the letter of 1 John, which can be found if you've got the Red uh, Bibles on page 1,225. Now, the Apostle John, um, he wrote three small letters to different churches and people that he knew well, and he was trying to address very specific issues. But right at the start of his first letter, in the first four verses, John basically says two things, and he makes it absolutely clear. He, first one is that he was an eyewitness to Jesus. He was a disciple, he was a follower of Jesus. And the second thing is that he's got a ministry to share of that account that he saw. And that's what he's wanting to encourage this church that he's writing to in this letter to 1 John. The false teaching that John was trying to address, three areas of false teaching 
is simply this, that fellowship with God, the false teaching that was around, fellowship with God was something that you just did on your own. That is not true. John wasn't thinking of fellowship in the way that we do at church when we talk about it sometimes. Oh, we're going to have fellowship with one another after today's gathering. We often think of that as, oh, having a nice cup of coffee and having a nice chat and a chinwag, catching up on last week. No, it was much more than that for John. It was much more than that for the apostles at that time. Fellowship was a commitment to a common task. That's what John meant by that. A commitment to a common task. And what is John's task? That second point I said at the beginning, to share the ministry that he witnessed in the life of Jesus. And what's our common task, our fellowship when here at St. Barnabas? Well, I hope that it is, as with Anne and me and many others in this room, it is the common task to share Jesus in the city of Cambridge. Fellowship ought to be committing ourselves around the person and love of Jesus and making him known. So that's the context broadly speaking, New Testament, then really quickly into 1 John, and then we're going to pick up in verse 5 of chapter 1 of 1 John. Here we go. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. There again, sorry, he's referencing his eyewitness account, making it clear. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, We make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and then we'll get into this together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. By your spirit now, would you speak to us? Lead us into all truth. In your name we pray. Amen. I wonder how you would define sin. Um, I worked in a school a few years ago um, as a, a dinner lady, I used to joke. Um, and I, I was in a conversation one at lunchtime with a load of kids and I said, uh, it was a church school, so it was, sort of, it was fairly okay to, to do this. Um, they'd just come from our lesson, they'd look, looking about sin. I said, oh, what's sin? And their simple definition, and it's always going to stick with me, and I think it's really helpful. They said, well, sin is basically me saying, I'm the boss of me. And God's not the boss of me. So when you sin, you're saying to God, stuff you, I want to do things my way. I wonder what's the areas of sin in your life at the moment. Here's here's the thing. It may be different for each of us. Sin. This this whiteboard is us. Sin. They've got greed, maybe. We've got lust. 
We've got anger. We've got deceit. We've got greed. I've got greed already. What else have I got? I was thinking of envy, pride. Arrogance, slander, gossip, selfish ambition, they're just a few. I look at that and I see myself in every single one of those. You know, as humans, we become really good liars. We tell our kids not to lie. We teach kids not to lie. But as adults, we become really good at it. The art of deception. There's three ways that we lie about our sin. I wonder if you noticed them in this passage. Verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. Verse 6. We lie to others. No. No. They're not. I'm not like them. Not that, that area of sin, that's, that's not me, no way. And we try and, we judge the person and we try and create this image for people to look at us and make, us, make them believe and think that we're all good and we've got it all together. Where's the honesty in that? We lie to ourselves, verse eight. If we claim to be out without sin, we deceive ourselves. We justify the actions that we do and the actions that we take. It's like, oh, well, no one will know about it. It's okay. It's just me that knows about it. It's just me that knows about that lust in my head every single time I look at that lady or that man. It's just me that knows about that selfish ambition that's building up within me and wanting to have everything about me and my name to be the best. And it's just me that knows about the pride in my life and the things that I've been given. No one will know. It's okay. Where's the integrity in that, though? We lie to God as well, verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar. That's a false teaching, one of the false teachings that John wanted to address in that church. Christians were claiming that they didn't sin at all on the moment they started to follow God. Or even worse and which I think is still a case around in churches today, they claim that, people claim that, ah, oh, well, I'm saved and forgiven by Jesus, so I can just do what I like. What a massive lie. Yes, we're forgiven people, but we still live in a fallen world where there's still sin. And we lie to God, and we, in doing so, we reduce the work of Jesus on the cross to next to nothing. Where's the humility in that? So we cloak our sin. What we do, we, we see it in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they take the fruit and they hide. And they hide from God and their sin, they know it. They, they try and cloak it up as if it's not there. Sin? No, not in my life. No one could see it. So what are we to do? Well, confess our sin. Verse 9. If we confess 
our sins, confess our sins, acknowledge our fallen state before God and say, God, I need you. I have been tempted by the pleasures of this world. I do think it's important when we come together as a church, we confess um, together as that we're sinful people. But I would also say that it's really important sometimes when we say big generic confession prayers, it's very generic, sorry. Name sin for sin, please, when you confess. Name it. God, I have, insert sin. Don't just say, I've, I've failed in word and deed and, and all that. I love those prayers, don't get me wrong. Name sin for sin, confess it. Because when we confess it, we're beginning to essentially uncover it, just a little bit, bit by bit, uncovering it. We're exposing it to God, who, of course, knew that our sin is there all along. How? Look at verse 5. It says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. When you cloak something, you create a darkness. If I stood under here now, there'd be a huge lack of light coming in. You cloak something. You try and hide it. But God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. So is it any surprise that the little things that we start to uncover and the things that we start to confess to God are already known to God? It's a bit like a parent in, uh, in a window or maybe a, a grandparent making a cup of tea in the kitchen, looking out into the back garden, and their, their, their kids or the grandkids are playing. One of them volleys them, absolutely levers them in the back of the leg starting a fight, and then the other one picks up a ball, tries to throw it at them, and then rolls over, hits the really family precious heirloom of a garden gnome, smashes it to smithereens. You as the grandparent or the parent, you're standing there, you're making your cup of tea, you've seen it all before they've even come to you. They come in, you carry on, you know exactly what's happened, and just, they carry on with their business, and then before long, they come to you and say, mom, dad, granddad, granny, I kicked so-and-so and I threw the ball and the thing's broken. You know before they even come to you. The same is true of God. He knows before we come to them. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't go to him. We are to come to him and confess our sin before him. Keep your finger in 1 John and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. If you've got the Red Bibles, it's on page 1,200 and free. Right at the bottom of that page, verse 13, the writer of the Hebrew says this, nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. In him there's no darkness at all and nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. So that leaves us with an important question, doesn't it, I think? How do we know what sin is and what is sin is not? Well, let's go back one verse in Hebrews chapter 4 to verse 12. This helps us to begin to answer that question. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give 
account. The truth of God's word, when we have that in us, when we read it, I'm talking about this. How's that reading of that going, by the way? Side question. When we confess our sins, God strips it bare. The scriptures tell us they expose our sinful nature for who we really are. They're laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees it all. It's active, it's alive, it penetrates to the deepest part of us. It strips us bare. When we cloak our sin, it's at the same time that God strips bare our sin when we've got God's words living in us. Remember back to John 1. 1 John, sorry, not John 1. 1 John, 1 John 1. Each of the three lies to others, to ourselves, to God. When we're talking about truth, did you notice with each of those lies, there was something about truth and of God's word in the midst of it? Here it comes. To others, not living out the truth at the end of verse 6. To ourselves, the truth is not in us. Verse 8, to God, when we lie, God's word is not in us. Truth is not simply an intellectual exercise or an activity. It's something that we can receive in faith and we can choose to submit to live by with the help of God. Reading God's word, reading God's breath on a page about God incarnate. God's Holy Spirit will illuminate not just that, but the things in our lives, the things in our hearts, that are sinful and that we ought to confess. But when you strip something bare, you're left naked, aren't you? That's what happens in a strip club. It's a bit crude, but, you know, you strip something bare, it's naked. But God just doesn't leave us bare but naked. That's not a God of mercy and love and compassion. What does God do? Instead of leaving us exposed in all of our sin, God sent Jesus to deal with it. Back in Hebrews verse 14 of chapter 4, it goes on to say, Therefore, since we have our great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. The sin in your life at the moment, Jesus empathises with it. He knows what's going on. He's been tested in every way and yet he didn't give in. He, of course, the story of Jesus in the wilderness is one, but one example where he was tested and didn't give in. When we confess our sin, we can be assured of forgiveness and cleansing. Because in verse 9 of 1 John, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
purifying. It's another way of saying cleansing. So God just doesn't leave us bare but naked in our sin. He sent Jesus. He exposes it through the power of God's word and his spirit convicting us. And he says, you know what, through Jesus, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to forgive you. To the point where that is absolutely completely white, not with smudges on. It's a bad rubber. I hope you get the point. God is just and so has to deal with our sin accordingly. But God is also merciful. He demonstrates it not only just in wiping away our sin, but also covering our sin. Jesus, on that cross, he sticks all of that on him. Covers it. We have an advocate with the Father. The word for advocate was, in the first century Rome, it was used in legal settings. And it was simply meant as someone who was to be a supporter, to be a sponsor before the judge. Think about that with Jesus in our case. Jesus is our sponsor. He's our supporter before the throne of God to whom we all must give account one day. And he's not only our advocate, he's also our atoning sacrifice. Whereas an advocate pleads for mercy, an atoning sacrifice secures mercy. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Isn't that quality? Well, maybe just a few of us. He covers and he smothers us in all his mercy, all his forgiveness and his faithfulness so that we can enjoy the fellowship with which Jesus intends for us. The common task in our fellowship is to share who Jesus is. For the sins of the whole world, Jesus died. That is who we've been drawn into fellowship with. I wonder if you've been tracking where we've come this morning. We cloak our sin, we cover up our sin, we confess our sin. When we cloak our sin, God strips bare our sin. When we confess our sin, God pardons our sin. When we uncover our sin, Jesus covers our sin. There's something quality in the way that John has written these few verses for us. I've taken those six phrases from a quote from Augustine, who was a first century um, historian or theologian. I just look at that on the left hand side, that is, that is us. But on the right, that is what God does. And it's in response to that that we can come to God with confidence. Verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. It's going to come up on the screen. It says this. Let us then, in view of all of that, of all of what God does, where he strips bare our sin, he covers our sin, and he pardons our sin, let us then approach the throne of God's grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When we approach with confidence, 
we not only receive mercy, we also find grace. We receive the mercy, the thing that we don't deserve, that God's judgment. We receive grace, God's saving goodness to us who don't deserve it. So this morning, turn your eyes to Jesus. Confess with confidence and know that the sin you've been cloaking up, God sees it anyway. Confess it. And when you confess, God will pardon you and he will cleanse you and he will forgive you. And when you uncover your sin, God has already covered your sin for you in Jesus on that cross. I'd love us to take a moment to pause in the silence. Business of Mill Road, ignore that. What is God saying to you this morning? Ask the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit hasn't already illuminated an area of sin in your life at the moment that you can come to God and confess. It might be something you don't want others to know. It might be something you've been denying yourself. And it might be something you've been pushing God away from. What is God showing to you this morning? So let's say this together. Almighty God, of infinite mercy and of great goodness, I confess to you, I confess with my whole heart my wrongdoing, thinking and speaking, the hurts I have done to others and the good I have left undone. Together we say the last part of this prayer. God, forgive me, pardon me, and purify me. For I have sinned against you and raised me to new life, in newness of life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So please hear this this morning. We have confessed. So may the God of love and power forgive you and free you from your sins. Heal and strengthen you by his spirit and raise you to new life in Christ. Amen.